Now turn, if you will, in your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 22. There has been the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus has cleansed the temple. He has delivered a series of parables, and I want to focus on the culminating parable, that of the wedding garment in chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Will you bow with me in prayer before we read this portion of God's Word? Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we are earnest in our prayer that the Holy Spirit bless His Word, that we be enabled by sovereign free grace to preach the Word in such a way that with the Holy Spirit's powerful attendance, the lost will come to know Jesus and your people will be built up in the most holy faith. Father, we ask that you will enable the ministers who stand in this pulpit to preach every sermon as if it could be our last, for indeed it could be my last. Only you know. But it also could be the last service attended by those who are sitting in pews today. May we hear Christ himself preach his word to us through his ambassador. And we ask, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that there will be eternal fruit from the word that is proclaimed from this passage this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. This is the word of God. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests." But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The recent royal wedding drew worldwide attention as Catherine Middleton and Prince William married. It is almost unimaginable that some might turn down an invitation to that event. And yet in the passage that we have read this morning from Matthew's Gospel, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, but many refused the invitation. They would not come. How will the wedding feast be filled with guests? Well, let's look at this parable and answer the question. 
The first thing we see as we look at this parable is the king's invitation. The king's invitation. The kingdom is compared to a wedding feast. All was made ready. The meat was prepared for the table. The board is laden with food. It is going to be a rich and wonderful feast. Invitations go out. The gospel privileges and blessings are represented in this abundance, all grounded in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And all within the hearing, the joyful sound are bid, come. But there are those to whom the invitation comes that refuse. We read in verse 3, he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, the verb refused actually is an imperfect tense in the Greek. It means that, therefore, they heard this invitation time and again, and they persistently reject the invitation that has come into their hearing. Who would do this? Who would fail to come to such a feast? Who would fail to respond to his king when his king called him to the marriage supper of his son? Who would spurn the king? Who would spurn the gracious proposals of the gospel when the king of kings sends his messengers out to preach his word as he does throughout the world? The king's son, of course, is Jesus. The father is God himself who sends his servants to proclaim the gospel of his son to sinners who persistently refuse that gospel. That invitation goes out again this morning from this pulpit from the one who is called to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, heralding forth this good news of Jesus who came and this great wedding feast to which you and I are invited. And undoubtedly there are some here who persistently refuse the invitation, the king's invitation. But see the king's mercy as secondly we note, the king's invitation is renewed in verse 14, in verse 4, we find, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The king repeats in his mercy the invitation to those who have rejected the offer to come to the feast, the gospel offer. Listen to how great the feast will be. Imagine the food. Imagine how wonderful it will be. It will be incredibly extravagant, this oriental feast. You know, such a feast would have gone on for day after day and night after night. It would have been a true gala affair. It would go on and on and on. And yet, those to whom the invitation came again refuse the invitation. We read in verses 5 and 6. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Though they were reasoned with, though the king's servants told them what a wonderful affair it would be, though the invitation came from the servants of the king persistently, yet they did not receive and accept the invitation. Why did those invited refuse to come? Well, some just paid no attention to it. They were indifferent to the king, indifferent to his son, indifferent to the invitation to the wedding feast. As Jesus says in John 5, 40, you will not come to me that you might have life. Multitudes perish from carelessness and making light of Jesus Christ. Others had better things to do. They had their businesses and their farms to care for. Well, that's understandable, but this is your king who is calling you to this feast. 
It is his son who is marrying. This is no common affair. This is the king of kings calling you to the wedding feast. But they had better things to do with their time. They were living for themselves. Others violently rejected the invitation and were hostile. We read in verse 6, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. They stoned the prophets. They killed the ambassadors of the king, and all for selfish reasons. What about today? What about here, this morning, today? The king has renewed his invitation. The gospel of Jesus Christ has come time and time again to you as an invitation, and yet many have rejected that invitation. God has spared you yet. You are here yet once more to hear this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet some here undoubtedly refuse this gospel. Perhaps you're a child, your parents don't know, but in your heart you have rejected that gospel. Perhaps you are, you are an older person. Everyone thinks you're a believer in Christ, but within your heart, you have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. May I say to you, my friend, you need to understand that you are rejecting your only Savior. We find today that there are bumper stickers that say coexist, and there's a cross. All along, there are other symbols of religions, and we are told that the Christian faith is just one of many religions. It doesn't matter which route you choose to God. Let's just get along and let's coexist. No, no. There is one Savior from sin. There is only one name given under heaven whereby men might be saved, and that is the name of Christ Jesus. There is only one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And if you reject this gospel of his son, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his invitation to the feast, you will be lost forever. Which leads us to our third point, the king's wrath. You see it in the text. In verse 7 we are told, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The king was not passive about this. Oh, if they don't want to come, that's fine. He is enraged. He sends his army. He destroys the murderers. He burns the city. Now, undoubtedly, this has as its first reference Israel, who had opportunity after opportunity to hear the good news through types and shadows, and yet when Christ himself came, rejected the king's son and the invitation to the great wedding feast. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians that God's wrath has come upon them to the uttermost, but it's applicable even today, this morning, to us. Because you see, the invitation that comes from a sovereign, the invitation that comes from the king, the invitation that comes from the king for you to come and trust his son this morning, come to that feast and to know him and trust him, an invitation that comes from the king is also a command. Don't think that the king is passive about this matter. And he has promised that he will pour out his wrath upon those who reject his son. Sinners are fully responsible for that rejection. Repeated, renewed calls have come and come and come, which shows the king's patience. Now, would he not be justified Had he punished upon the first rejection of this invitation? Oh, surely he would. He is a righteous king. 
And he would have been fully justified had he punished upon the first rejection of the invitation. But the invitation has come time and time and time again, just as it did to ancient Israel, just as it did when Jesus came and continues to through the proclamation of the gospel today. And when the king sends his wrath, who can stand? This is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, infinite, holy, and just in all of his ways. And when he pours out his wrath upon hell-deserving sinners, who can stand in the day of his judgment? When that wrath comes upon those who do not believe to the uttermost, and it will not be a wrath that is spent, but a wrath that goes on and on and on and on and on, I never approach this without great fear and trepidation within my soul. This is an awesome reality. But the minister of the gospel of Christ must say, if he is to be faithful to the king, who sends out his invitation to this congregation this morning, that if you reject the invitation of the son, his wrath will come upon the Christ rejecter to the uttermost, and that for eternity. Well, will there be guests? It looks somewhat bleak thus far. The wedding is ready. The feast is prepared. The invitations have been sent. Time and time again, the invitation has been rejected. But we see, fourthly, the indiscriminate call in verses 8 through 10. Let's look again at these verses, verses 8 through 10. Then he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. What does the king do? If Israel will not come, the Gentiles will. I will send my messengers into the highways and byways, into the street corners, perhaps those places such as crossroads, so that they would find many and could invite many. And there is a universal invitation to come to the wedding feast, an indiscriminate call of the gospel that now goes forth in this day in which we live. For all kinds of people, the text says good and bad, that is to say the morally upstanding and the morally degraded, all are sinners in need of a Savior, and our ascended Lord has given to his church the command, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. And it's this universal, indiscriminate call of the gospel that Jesus is teaching now in this parable. And what is the result? His messengers go out into the world, and verse 10 tells us that the wedding hall was filled with guests. For not only has that gospel call come into this congregation and perhaps some few have rejected, but through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, many of you have accepted and have believed. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. Because we are told in Matthew one twenty one, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Because he is a Savior, he will have guests at the wedding feast. But fifthly, we see in this parable a very awesome reality. And it is the reality of the proper attire for the wedding feast. The proper attire. We read about it beginning in verse 11. 
But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. The king came to see his guests. And as the king looks over his guests gathered for that great feast, as those who are rejoicing and enjoying the food, as he does so, the king sees that there is an intruder. There is someone here who is not dressed in the wedding garment. Now this man came in and he got by the guests. Undoubtedly they didn't notice. He got by the servants. The servants didn't notice. But he did not get by the king. And there are those here perhaps sitting in our congregation this morning and you have gotten by the guests. Other believers around you don't know that you are not a believer. You've gotten by the servants, the ministers of the gospel who bring the invitation, but you will not get by the king. Because God the king is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Every thought, every intent of the heart Our infinite, all-knowing, and all-seeing God knows. And when the king approached this man, the man was speechless. In verse 12 it says, The king said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Literally the word means muzzled. He was mute. He was condemned by his own heart, and he was condemned by his own conscience. He knew he had no right to be there. No right among the people of the king who were gathered at the wedding feast. He knew that in his heart he was not one of them, that he had not trusted the king's son. And the king's eye pierced right through. And this man who was personally accountable knew his guilt and he had nothing to say. He didn't say, but, but, no, this is the king before whom he stands. Before the servant, he might have come up with his excuses. Before the guests, he might have come up with his excuses. But before the king, he is altogether silent. He has no word before the king. And on that day when the secrets of every heart will be made manifest before the infinite heart-searching God, There will be none who opens his mouth with, but, but, let me offer to you my reasons. Let me offer to you my excuses. There will be no reasons on that day, and there will be no excuses on that day. Well, he might have said to the servants, I just thought I would hide in the crowd. I thought I would just participate in the blessings without actually loving the son. But he won't say that to the king. The king judges him, and the man was punished by the king himself, because the king, in his infinite righteousness, is offended. And he is offended by all who say, I will come, yeah, sure, I'll come to the feast, but I'll come my own way. I'll come in the way I want to come, I'll come in my own clothing, I'll come through my own religious exercises, sure, I'll come, but I'll come in my own way. No, no, the king pronounces judgment, and the sentence is irrevocable. 
As the old Puritan Matthew Henry put it, hypocrites go by the light of the gospel itself down into utter darkness, and hell will be held indeed to such a condemnation more intolerable. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This our Savior often uses as part of the description of hell torments, which are hereby represented not so much by the misery itself as by the resentment sinners will have of it. There shall be weeping, an expression of great sorrow and anguish, not a gush of tears which gives present ease, but constant weeping which is constant torment, and the gnashing of teeth is an expression of the greatest rage and indignation. They will be like a wild bull in a net full of the fury of the Lord. Let us therefore hear and fear. And my friend, if I know that according to this text, if I do not have the wedding garment, that I will not be accepted at that feast, I want to know what the wedding garment is. Don't you? What is the wedding garment? It's amazing to me if you go to the commentators, how many of the commentators say, well, Jesus is indistinct here, and so we must be indistinct. He's not indistinct. It's very clear from reading what he means, especially as you compare Scripture with Scripture. What is the wedding garment? You can know from reading this parable what it is. It is a robe declaring the guests fit. The guests are not fit if they do not have on this robe. They're not fit to be in the presence of the king if they do not have on this robe. What is the wedding garment? It is a robe declaring the guests acceptable. You are acceptable if you have on this robe, and if you come before the presence of the king with this. What is the wedding garment? It is, it is a gift of the king. It is a gift of his grace, for it is the king that gives the wedding garment It's not something that the wedding guests produce on their own. What is the wedding garment? Well, you find in this text it is necessary, it is indispensable protection from the judgment. If you don't have it, you will not be protected from the judgment. And so as we look at this text and we see that the wedding garment is a robe declaring the guests fit, that it is a robe declaring the guests acceptable, that it is a gift of grace, that it is necessary and indispensable protection from the judgment. What is the wedding garment? Clearly, the wedding garment is the judicial robe of Christ's righteousness imputed to believers in Jesus. Without the robe of his perfection received by faith alone, without this we are found out, without this we are tied and thrown into the darkness awaiting judgment, As we read in verse 13, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is the perfect record of Jesus Christ received by faith alone. And so I ask you as Christ's ambassador this morning, are you properly attired for the wedding Are you fit by Christ's righteousness, justified by his righteousness, accepted by his righteousness, protected from the judgment that is coming by the perfect record of Christ that is received, not by works which we have done, but only according to his sovereign mercy? Do you have that garment? Are you wearing that perfect record, that righteousness? I was reading about the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
Just this week in Revelation 19, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I thought to myself, where would I be when Jesus Christ comes in a vestment dipped in blood to judge the nations if I am not clothed from head to foot in the perfection of Jesus' own righteousness received by faith. Can you sing, as we have from that great hymn this morning, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. In flaming worlds with these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Can you sing that from the heart? Do you know it to be true of you? Who is the intruder anyway? Who, who is the person who has slipped in here? The guests not, have not noticed. The servants have not noticed. Who is the man, the woman, the child who is the intruder into the wedding supper? My friend, the intruder is the person who rejects the invitation, who rejects the good news of Jesus, the gospel. It is the person who clings to his own righteousness as if you had any to which to cling. Listen, this is not a potluck supper. This is the wedding supper for the Son of God. When I go to that supper, I don't say, well, yeah, he's loaded the board with all of this wonderful, wonderful grace and mercy, but I'm going to bring my own casserole. What an offense to the king. Do that in some other occasion, it's no offense. But when it's the king, when he has said, you come and by my grace, you experience my bounty, then it is an offense to the king when I say I'm going to bring something of my own, some old recipe of mine. No, no, no. He is an intruder who clings to his own righteousness. He is an intruder who draws a garment from his own wardrobe. This fellow was dressed, wasn't he? But not in the right garment. He got it from somewhere. Maybe it even imitated the garment that the king would give. Maybe it even looked like it in many ways, but it was not the wedding garment. The man who was wrongly dressed tries to cover himself in the presence of the guests and the servants and the king. This is the man who says, oh, I'll do the best I can. But he's also the man who, like Adam and Eve, sows fig leaves. And when he stands in the presence of the infinite God, he can only say, I'm, I'm poor, blind, miserable, naked in your presence. The person who has not on the garment is the person who relies on the law, thinking his own works will save him. It is the person who professes what he does not possess. It is the person who has no saving faith in Christ. It is the person who shows no change of life for having met the king, because those who are justified are also being sanctified. Is that you? The person who has rejected the gospel clings to his own righteousness, draws a garment from his own wardrobe, relies on the law, professes what he does not possess, has no saving faith in Christ, shows no change of life for having met the king as the person who is not prepared to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. 
You need the righteous robe of Christ to dress you from head to toe. For from the crown of the head to the sole of the foot, there is no righteousness in man but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. And therefore, we need in the presence of God, from the crown of the head to the sole of the foot, the perfect record of Jesus Christ to be imputed to our account. And this imputed righteousness only can satisfy the law's demands that would crush you without it. This imputed righteousness only can justify you in God's court of law. This imputed righteousness only can quiet your conscience because we are sinners and accused by the evil one. Oh, by faith, take Christ's righteousness to be your righteousness. Take his perfect record to be your perfect record. Take his substitution on the cross to be truly your substitution on the cross. In the words of old Robert Trail, the poor, wearied sinner can never believe on Jesus Christ till he finds he can do nothing for himself. And in his first believing, he always applies to Christ for salvation as a man hopeless and helpless in himself. Would you have that righteousness to be your own? Then come as a man or a woman who is hopeless in yourself having nothing whatsoever to give or to offer and simply receive it by faith. No work of yours, no good thing, for all of our righteousness are as but filthy rags in his presence. But there's something else to see. We're not done. I want you to see, sixthly, sovereign grace will furnish guests at the feast. For Jesus concludes this parable with these words in verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. Now by many are called, he means the indiscriminate invitation, the indiscriminate command to believe and repent, the indiscriminate call of the gospel that goes out to every creature under heaven, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is a sincere invitation. It is a bona fide invitation. But because of man and his own sin and depravity, no man is capable of responding to that call apart from the grace of God and the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. Many are called, but few are chosen. That's the effectual call. God has a chosen people, and he will bring them to himself. The call goes out from Christ's minister, and some refuse, and some are inappropriately attired. But the encouragement of the text is that God's sovereign choice secures the salvation of sinners that he has determined to to adorn with the robe of the righteousness of Jesus and has promised that he will bring them to the feast. So that as the gospel of Christ is preached and we evangelize in this world and in our community, we can know the gospel goes out sincerely to sinners as sinners, but God has a people and he has promised that he will draw them. That's the plain meaning of the text. Many are called, but few are chosen. It is infallibly secured that he will have guests at the feast because the father chose a people and he will not be disappointed. Because the Son died as a substitute for them, and He will not be disappointed. Because the Sovereign Holy Spirit draws them, and He will not be disappointed. And the Holy Spirit will give to His ministers, to His messengers, to His proclaimers, 
the blessing of a secret power that comes through the word itself and draws his own unto him. Yes, guests will be furnished at the feast. This is why the mission that Christ has given to his church will succeed. Now let's bring it all to conclusion. What means does God use to draw lost sinners to himself, to draw them to the feast, to clothe them with the righteousness of Christ? Well, it should be obvious from the text. The means he uses is the proclamation, come, the invitation that goes out, the command to believe and to repent. The indiscriminate call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the means that God has appointed to draw his own unto himself. Now, some of you are thinking a lot about the Titanic. 100th anniversary, and you see it, newspaper articles. I tend to read the BBC News. There are a lot of articles in the BBC News about the Titanic now because of this anniversary celebration. Um, Titanic movies come back out so that people can remember it and you're thinking about it. Maybe a few of you here will know the name John Harper. Most of you probably don't. John Harper was a minister in Paisley, Scotland, powerful preacher of the word, evidently. And he was called to Moody Church in Chicago to be their pastor. Was on his way with his six-year-old daughter. He was a widower. Had his six-year-old daughter. Got on board the Titanic. He was going to preach some meetings in Chicago. Introduce himself to them as their new pastor-elect. You know the story. The ship begins to sink into the icy waters. John Harper is a minister of the gospel. The first thing he does is take his six-year-old put her on a lifeboat, sends her away. He stays on board and he proclaims Jesus Christ to every sinner he meets. And he begins to cry out, women and children and the unsaved on the lifeboats. One man came up and was offended. John Harper took off his life preserver, gave it to this man and said, here, you need it more than I do. Soon, John Harper is in the water. Others there, soon to die of hypothermia, perhaps drowning. What does he do? He swims to this person, that person, the other person. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you believe in Christ? There's one man, one man to whom he came. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? No, I don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. John Harper called him to Christ and went to another. A little later, he bumps into him again. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. And the man said to him, I didn't when you asked the first time. But since you left and have come again, I've received Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And those were the last words that John Harper heard as he sank beneath the waves. The man who was converted was rescued soon thereafter by returning lifeboats. And in Ontario, he said, I am John Harper's last convert. Now you are in a safe place, aren't you? Or so it seems.
no watery grave under you. You don't know if you're going to take your next breath, my friend. You don't know that. This may be my last sermon, the last sermon you ever hear. We don't know. John Harper, do you believe? No. Do you believe? Yes. Some of you have heard the gospel time and time and time again. Now the gospel comes to you this morning. Will you believe that gospel? Will you trust in that Christ? Will you be adorned with the wedding garment? That's it, you see. This is the means that God uses. Come to the marriage feast. Be clothed with a wedding garment. Dressed in the flawless righteousness of Christ, this is the one who is the guest. This is the one who is saved. This is the one who is perfect before God's holy justice. This is the man, woman, or child who is justified. This is the person who is accepted. This is the person who is saved irrevocably because he is dressed in a righteousness not his own received by faith. It is a garment that will never wear out. And it is a garment that you can wear into the fire When Jesus comes again in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. And so we have this parable. And all things are ready for hell-deserving sinners. All things are ready, and there is no excuse not to come. All things are ready. Come with empty hands to the wedding feast. The fair is infinitely bountiful. The invitation is sincere. All things are ready. Add nothing to it. Just come, will you? Just come. Will you come? Just come to the feast. And God's people said, Amen.